0: Welcome to the Pasty Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Performance at the Sports Surgery Clinic, Ender King. Welcome to episode 166 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, before we get going, I just want to say thank you to Charlie Higgins at Leinster Rugby once again for making the introduction to Ender. So, Ender is the head of performance at the sports surgery clinic. Um, so, the sports surgery clinic and what they do is the kind of first part of call. So I visited there probably two years ago and was blown away with what it actually is and the kind of purpose of the sports surgery clinic. They've moved into new facilities now and it looks absolutely incredible. Um, So that's the kind of first part of call with Ender in uh, what the sports surgery clinic in Dublin actually does and how his role fits within that. So Ender is an expert when it comes to athletic groin pain and ACLs, so naturally that's what we kind of focus this this chat on, starting with um, fighting against athletic groin pain, um, and speaking from experience, someone who's had numerous groin injuries. I'm sure there's plenty out there that have. Uh, it was a fascinating little chat with uh, with Ender in part one. And then in part two, we got into the ACL chat, which again, incredibly uh, informative and just kind of reinforces and adds to a lot of the chats that I've had previously with the likes of Bill Knowles, et cetera, who have have discussed ACL uh, rehab in previous episodes. I'm doing
1: my, my, my control exercise and my compound lifts, and they're telling me that they're developing their groin pain sprinting and they're developing their groin pain change direction. If I'm not looking at and developing and looking to influence those patterns, there's going to be a limit to how robust I can make that athlete. In the, in the same way for any other injury, if someone is persistently pulling their hamstring sprinting and I'm only doing hamstring strengthening work, there is a limit to how robust I can make that athlete uh, to resist those type of injuries. And so groin pain is really no different.
0: But just before we get into this fantastic episode with Ender, just want to say thank you to today's sponsors. So, firstly, is Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar and Human Track, for sponsoring this episode today. So, if you want to know anything more about the three products that are from Vald, you can visit them at valperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valperformance. Also sponsored this episode today is Force Decks. So if you haven't heard of Force Decks, make sure you check out episode 139. So that's strengthofscience.com forward slash 139 with uh, Dr. Daniel Cohen, who is one of the co-owners, uh, sorry, co-founders of Force Decks along with Phil Graham Smith. So in, the, in that episode, Daniel goes into huge amounts of depth with regards to jump monitoring uh, and also uh, touches on what force decks is all about now it's certainly not a sales pitch um, but it will give you plenty of information on not only force decks but jump monitoring as a uh, as a tool so After them, thank yous have gone out to the sponsors. We will get straight into the episode with Ender. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Again, I would love any feedback coming my way, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Um, And I I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for tuning in to the Pasty Performance Podcast. So this evening I'm delighted to welcome Ender King who is the Head of Performance at the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin. So welcome to the podcast Ender.
1: Thank you very much for having me Rob.
0: Thank you very much for uh, giving me time to to be here. Uh, anyone that doesn't know who you are do you just want to give us a little bit of background on you and then we'll touch on what the Sports Surgery Clinic does?
1: Yeah I am, I'm a physiotherapist uh, by, by trade or by profession. Um, I I my undergraduate studies in Trinity College in Dublin, uh, I then did my masters in uh, Curtin University uh, in Perth in Australia and I'm currently doing my uh, PhD in return to play after ACL reconstruction in the University of Roehampton in London. Um, I suppose my career has um, changed and developed over time towards uh, a focus on rehabilitation, especially uh, in athletic populations. Uh, in particular in relation to lower limb injuries. Um, I suppose my, my uh, understanding and uh, expertise in strength and conditioning has had to evolve accordingly um, over that time. Uh, and so now I'm uh, in a current role as uh, Head of Performance at the Sports Surgery Clinic where I look after our residential program where um, uh, athletes, usually elite athletes, come to spend uh, blocks of time with us for intensive rehab um, anywhere between two and eight weeks. I'm involved in our ACL and groin research programs, um, both in terms of my clinical practice and also as part of my PhD. Um, I uh, offer a consultancy with uh, elite teams and organizations in relation to the use of biomechanics in injury prevention and rehabilitation. And then I'm responsible for the clinical consistency um, across all our uh, clinical streams in the clinic uh, and trying to develop uh, education pathways uh, and development pathways to ensure the consistency approach uh, for all our patients and athletes.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you say patients, that's general population, and then you've got yeah, the, the side.
1: yeah both. I, I, um, the the sports surgery clinic itself um, is an orthopaedic hospital, um, and uh, it would have approximately forty uh, orthopaedic consultants, um, about fifty inpatient beds and, and day beds, uh, a large radiology department uh, with. Two MRIs, uh, CT, etc. And when the clinic was was founded ten years ago, they also had the the foresight to uh, open a sports medicine department as part of that. And so, uh, sports medicine rehabilitation uh, operate under the one umbrella, um, both to to complement the orthopedic side of uh, of the of the business, but also um, as a a standalone. uh, source of uh, referrals and uh, patient basis and that's across uh, a large caseload of every age and, and every so it can be your <clears throat> your young athlete with his anterior knee pain it could be the young athlete's granny with her hip replacement uh, and everything kind of in between um, and uh, I suppose the clinic has developed a reputation nationally and internationally um through its clinical practice but also through the research that it's involved in towards the more athletic side of things in particular, around um, athletic groin, uh, ACL injury, uh, shoulder reconstruction, and concussion. Um, so uh, it has a, a mix of, of every type of, of athlete and patient
0: type. Mm-hmm. So you get in the athletes that you get in rugby, uh, Gaelic football,
1: yeah, soccer, but, yeah. But the main, um, the majority of sports played in Ireland are field-based sports, which would be the, the, the three that you've outlined: uh, Gaelic games, um, rugby, and soccer. And um, we would have. Um, not an inconsiderable amount of golf and uh, equestrian uh, or horse riding as well. Um, less so in the upper limb injuries in terms of swimming and tennis and stuff that I suppose it's interesting how your caseload is driven by by where you practice when I was working down in Australia. I would say 80% of my caseload was 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 shoulder from uh, bowling and swimming and tennis, et cetera, but uh, less of that. So it tends to be slightly more lower limb uh a lot of the shoulder injuries tend to be uh, reconstructions from trauma, from Gaelic games and from rugby. But uh, um, the majority are, are field-based sports and then a lot of recreational runners um, with the usual overuse injuries.
0: Mm-hmm. So I was, as you know, I was talking to Charlie Higgins at Leinster and he asked me to uh, – well, he's obviously a big proponent of sending his guys to you. But why uh, – he actually went through this with me, but I'd be interested to know from your side why – guys like him send their multi-million pound or euro uh, stars to you. What what do you offer that they potentially can't offer back at their clubs for this intensive period?
1: Yeah, it, there's usually a, a number of different reasons. I suppose the services we, we try to offer, the clinic try to complement uh, the elite team environment and the challenges that they face. Um, I suppose that there's normally three types of, of, of player athlete that gets sent to us. Number one is a, a long-term injury, whether that's a, a reconstruction of some type, whether it's ACL, Achilles, shoulder, etc., where there's a prolonged period of rehab and uh, either A, for a change of scenery, or B, to make intensive games over a short block of time. They'll come to spend time with us here in the clinic. and Maybe it's that <clears throat> the, the team themselves have, have quite a large playing group and are looking to offload some of their longer-term injuries um, off-site for a little while so they can focus on the the day-to-day niggles uh, that tend to present. Um, The second group tend to be around uh, challenging injuries that maybe aren't clearing up um, the way they would have hoped, uh, in particular around uh, overuse injuries like athletic groin pain, uh, high hamstring tendinopathy, Achilles issues, etc., where we have a, a large... Uh, degree of experience both clinically and in research in those cohorts and like anthony else the more you see of a particular type of injury the more experience you can you can develop with that and and also the 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 way we utilize technology in terms of 3d biomechanics uh, force plate analysis uh, etc to try and offer a a comprehensive diagnostic view of all the components that are leading to injury in that athlete Um, and the third one then is, is is healthy athletes those that maybe have come to spend time with us previously or those that have an injury history uh, have struggled to stay clear of injury but are in a healthy phase at the minute whereby they're really looking for an opportunity in pre-season or maybe during a gap in fixtures to have an intensive block to improve the robustness of that athlete across uh, strength power uh, intersegmental control linear running mechanics change direction mechanics conditioning levels etc and again trying to use I suppose our technology and experience to to identify where the low-lying fruit is and where those athletes weak points are so that we can be more targeted in the interventions that we, we give accordingly.
0: Mm-hmm. So athletic groin pain you mentioned it there is that something that you're renowned for is that again is that something that you've pursued or is, like you said about the environment that you're in the, the kind of place that the uh, clinic is situated is that something that's found you
1: I think it's it's a combination of a different of a number of things. Um, We've we a lot of athletic groin pain in Ireland. Um, it's it's a combination of having a lot of field sports, um, having a lot of players play multiple sports concurrently, and having excessive training loads. Um, maybe not <clears throat> a, a huge amount of, of structured conditioning and training programs, leading to to, to uh, athletes that are doing too much or doing the wrong stuff just through, through poor education. Um, and I suppose my own personal interest comes where I had a lot of, of groin injury myself uh, when I played sport. Um, and you you see a lot of these patients coming on a day to day basis. I'm very fortunate where I'm working with uh, two experts in the area, uh, Andy Franklin Miller and Ana Falvey. So um, between us, I suppose a lot of groin pain patients get referred to the clinic. And through the research we're carrying out in the area, you begin to identify the common themes that seem to run across all of these injuries and, and maybe <clears throat> developing more bespoke or efficient methods of, of trying to deal with them.
0: So is there anything more specific into the reasons for their occurrence? So lots of field sports, potential potential lack of conditioning. Um, is there anything else that is a particular reason for them being so prevalent?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's both external and internal factors. So, you know, you need load in order to develop groin pain. And where you get peaks or spikes in load, whether that's a a young athlete, it's very, very common to see a young athlete moves into the the senior ranks across different sports. Their training load massively increases accordingly and all of a sudden they start to develop groin pain. Uh, You have certain athletes who, when they go back into pre-season, have seen a change in load and develop groin symptoms. And then commonly, you get the guys who who are gradually developing symptoms and are, are, are doing less and less and less to try and get by and just play their games over time and their, their load tolerance just falls off the cliff so you know you need load in order to develop groin pain but in parallel with that there are a huge number of mechanical factors why the hip and the anterior pelvis uh, become overloaded uh, either at an individual site or across multiple sites um, and that's a, a very common pattern around you know control around a singular joint or joints whether that's Lateral hip control, or lumbo-pelvic control, or control of the thorax, abdominal control of the thorax in the sagittal or transverse planes, and um, how that individual joint control is taken then into compound movements like uh, squatting and deadlifting and lunging, and then those how those com- uh, compound movements are expressed in more sport-specific movements like uh, linear running mechanics and change direction mechanics, um, and what we found consistently across our research and our clinical experience is that how these athletes move is very, very individual to, sorry, is very unique to each individual. So we could have five adductor-related groin pains who all move completely differently. And therefore, if we give them all our doctor program, that may be what they needed. It may be some of what they needed or maybe not be what they needed at all. And so we're finding that by being targeted, uh, by being comprehensive in, in all the components we look at, but then being targeted in the rehabilitation intervention, that we're able to be much more successful in terms of how quickly we can turn these issues around, but also how robust we can make those athletes afterwards. And that will be part of the challenge in groin pain is that you get so many different terminologies for pain in the same area. Some people say you should do surgery. Some people you should say (coughs) you should do rehab, but a lot of the focus is on where the pain is coming from, as opposed to why that area is becoming symptomatic and, uh, we're just finishing uh, releasing our, our rehabilitation paper in the area in sub-elite athletes that we reviewed once a week, uh, sorry, once every two weeks, uh, giving a, a, a program that looked on individual joint control, compound movements, and then taking them into linear and multi-directional mechanics, and we found very successful outcomes in relation to that. So I think part of the, the, the challenge in groin pain is obviously the, the management of load as it is in, in, in all injuries, but... Also, how that athlete is moving and how those movement patterns, whether it's poor lateral hip control or, or uncontrolled anterior pelvic tilt, how those are leading to stress, strain, and preferential loading of tissues across the anterior pelvis.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so because there's so many kind of profiles of people that come in to, to see you with athletic groin pain, does that make it harder to screen these guys back at clubs <coughs> because there's so many potential issues?
1: I think th- there's probably you know, three main difficulties in relation to trying to screen players in, in clubs. Number one is um, being able to carry out a screen that you're going to be able to look at your entire playing population in one go. Um, so it's all well and good looking at, at everything analysis, but how are you going to screen your, your entire squad in one go? So you're trying to stratify and identify the high-risk players from that. Secondly is that in terms of the technology, used in 3D biomechanical analysis and uh, linear run mechanical analysis that may not always be available um, at, at club level, irrespective of, of, of the, the, the club, club that you're, you're dealing with or the level that you're playing at. And then thirdly is the expertise in um, the analysis of that data and how it relates back to groin pain. So we in the last five years, we have had approximately 3,000 groins um, through the clinic. Uh, and so through that, large number of players you are able to identify specific patterns that begin to emerge in, in relation to that uh, whereas if you're in, in, in a club environment and you may have you know if you're lucky maybe one grind a year or one groin every two years and um, it's difficult to to identify the same patterns or or same issues that seem to be represented across the entire playing group
0: so when it comes to rehabbing these issues do you just want to talk to us a little bit about um the kind of uh, what that rehab may look like I mean I know that's uh, kind of going against what you've said because there's so many different kind of aspects but maybe big ticket some big ticket stuff that maybe maybe you'll be able to fit into many of the different boxes that you've mentioned
1: yeah I I think taking it in in a stepwise approach um looking at, at, at control across uh, an individual joint, and let's say we take um, the, the hip joint for, as an example. Um, so <clears throat> for a lot of times, th- there is there's a, a, a lack or a, a deficiency in, in lateral hip control and rotational control around the hip joint. Um, and so it's one thing being able to identify that through, through uh, a movement screen, but it's a second thing to be able to intervene on it. And what we find a lot of the times is that it's not only identifying what the deficit is, but it's prescribing the right exercise and coaching that exercise in the right way to get the changes that you're looking for. So time and again we'll see players who have who will be asked for a second opinion on, they'll have done six to eight weeks of, of rehabilitation um, and will be feeling no different. And and for a lot of the time they've identified the right deficits and prescribed the right program. But the execution of that program is not leading to the changes they're looking for. Um, So, for example, you'll find people who are doing lateral hip work and feeling it in their low lumbar spine or they're doing abdominal work and rather than, you know, recruiting or, or redistributing load across the obliques, they find it all in the rectus abdominis, which is already overactive. And these are the guys that, you know, will do adductor strengthening. But they'll say the adductor strengthening or the abdominal strengthening is actually aggravating their groin symptoms because they're reinforcing the problem rather than redressing the balance around it. And um, the second segment is, is how that single joint control is taken into more complex compound movements. So it's all well and good doing our hip pitches or our hip flexing work or our glute med work. But if we collapse into anterior tilt during a deadlift or a a front squat or or a split lunge, then we're really reinforcing the patterns of movement that we've been trying in our single joint exercises to try and remedy. Um, And then thirdly, it's the expression of those more complex movements in change direction patterns and in linear running mechanics patterns. And it's, it's not that, you know, you're going to make everyone run like you in Bolt or, or, or change direction like an NFL uh, wide receiver. But it's about increasing their room for error. Uh, it's incri- about redistribution of load that you're not preferentially loading the one area all the time. And, you know, if they improve the way they distribute load, well, number one is that they should uh, reduce overload across the anterior pelvis. But if I doing my linear running mechanics uh, sorry if i'm doing my, my my control exercise and my compound lifts and they're telling me that they're developing their groin pain sprinting and they're developing their groin pain change direction if i'm not looking at and developing and looking to influence those patterns there's going to be a limit to how robust i can make that athlete in the in the same way for any other injury if someone is persistently pulling their hamstring sprinting and i'm only doing hamstring strengthening work there is a limit to how robust i can make that athlete uh, to resist those type of injuries, and so a groin pain is really no different.
0: Mm-hmm. Just, I'm just uh, kind of going back on my own experience, and again, someone that suffered from a lot of uh, groin injuries in, in myself, just like just like you. But uh, in my later days um, working at a football club, it seemed that there was a specific physio that I can picture in my head that any first team player that seemed to go in with uh, groin pain seemed to go for surgery. Yes. Why Why is it that so many people who have athletic ground pain end up under the knife?
1: Um, probably for, 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 for two reasons. Number one is that uh, going for surgery, especially in a lead sport, it's a very definitive pathway. So you go for surgery, something is done, and there's a rehabilitation pathway afterwards. And very often those players will have... Uh, Failed rehab in in inverted commas, but that's not really the point. What we find in groin pain patients, for for the most part, is they'll generally have symptoms at two or three different areas. So maybe their pubic bone down onto the adductor, maybe up into the low abdominal muscles. And so, you know, are you unlucky enough to have three different diagnoses and therefore need three different surgeries, or is it the way I'm moving is is overloading that area? And so, where you know where athletes drift and players drift towards um surgery is that look at at least in surgery you're seen to be doing something. There there's a very definitive approach. However, within that you're not addressing the reason why symptoms developed in the first place. For the most part, the symptoms develop gradually by nature. So if is developing gradually, it's the way I'm loading that area that's causing those symptoms. And especially when you develop symptoms in, in in multiple different areas, how do you decide which one you're going to operate on or who's the main culprit in the area? Um, and also within that then for, for I mean the groin area in terms of where symptoms come from is, it's a very small area yet you can have procedures that want to release things procedures that want to repair things procedures that want to reinforce structures all for the same anatomical presentation and um, and so that's the bit that, that I struggle with both as, as someone who had groin pain and the players that I rehabilitated afterwards is that depending on 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 where they were reviewed, they would get a very different uh, anatomical diagnosis. And therefore, depending on that anatomical diagnosis, they could get a very different surgical or anatomical procedure, yet they were all presenting with the exact same symptoms. And so I think where they, the, the strive to surgery, and not just in groin, but anywhere, <coughs> any overuse injury in elite sport tends to be around its, its definitive pathway. I have surgery and therefore I'm going to fix something and therefore there's a clear pathway. And even for teams that are, medical teams who are under pressure to, to deliver results, it at least buys them some time for, for a rehabilitation block afterwards. Now, whether you should do that or not is not really the question, but there is huge demands on, on medical teams, at least sports, to, to have a solution and have it now. And sometimes the surgery is, I wouldn't say the easy option, but it, it, it appears to offer a more clear uh, pathway to recovery. But we end up seeing a lot of the, the after effect of that, whereby six, eight, ten weeks later, the athletes are no further on because either A, that wasn't where their source of their symptoms was coming from, or B, what they are fixed wasn't or, or didn't fix wasn't what the problem was at all. Um, and so if, if the area is overloaded, surely we need to take some steps. And, and you'll see this in particular in relation to hip surgery, which has really seen a prolific rise in, in evidence, partly because MRI is so readily available, um, but with that increased availability, we're seeing things that we're not sure of their relevance or not. So in, in, in field sport athletes in particular, the, the prevalence of labral tears is, it's, in asymptomatic athletes, is hugely common. But as soon as someone has groin pain, and they get a scan, they say there's a labral tear there, well, the hip must be the source of the problem, even though they might have no hip symptoms whatsoever. Um, so I think it's, it's the, the, the reason for surgery can be related sometimes to, A, looking for a definitive quick fix, but also B, a lack of understanding or appreciation of how those symptoms developed, what's normal and abnormal on, on radiology, and then the quickest way to build your, your athlete back into a into robust bus setup.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what would be the timeline for you and the guys at the sports surgery clinic that would end in you guys deciding that surgery is the option? Moving back from that, what would be the, the kind of process of um, discussion and the questions that you'd ask? before you get to that point of surgery is what we need?
1: Yeah, I think if, if our approach is that if, if surgery is needed, it's needed at the beginning. So it's either something that's appropriate for surgery or not, um, as opposed to something that, that hasn't worked out. And, and sometimes I fear a, 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 in rehabilitation that, that we can use surgery as a get-out-of-jail clause, maybe for, for, for not taking things through as far as we need to take them through. Um, so for us, someone is either for surgery or for not. When it comes to musculotendinous groin pain, um, we don't feel there are any athletes that really require surgery, uh, that they're all overuse injuries and and do very, very well at rehabilitation. Now, in saying that, we do rehabilitation, so of course I'm going to say that, but our research Mm -hmm. and uh, our clinical experience would suggest that. When it comes to hip surgery, um, certainly you would want to be certain through uh, interarticular injection that number one is that the hip joint was the source of pain and not some other structure around the area. And number two is that the biomechanical factors that you felt had were driving that hip pain had all been resolved before you consider then if uh, they required surgery from there. And so <clears throat> where we've been both in my own clinical practice and our practice in general being successful is that doing six or eight weeks rehab, it doesn't mean anything. It only matters what we change. So if, if athletic groin pain is an overuse injury and a biomechanically driven injury, then the quicker we change the reason that you develop those symptoms, the quicker that you recover. And so I can do, you know, six or eight weeks, any training program, let alone a rehab program. And if I haven't substantially changed the reasons or the assessments that were driving that problem, I won't look or feel any different six or eight weeks later. So in relation to our hip patients, where we're wondering should they be going for surgery or not, number one is the hip, the, the hip would have to be the source of symptoms, but number two is we would want to have addressed all the mechanical factors, strength, power, rate of force development, and then how those qualities are taken into higher-speed movements. And if then the, the athlete was still struggling to return, then we'd have to wonder if there was need for uh, alternative intervention. When it comes to the athletic groin pain or the musculotendinous injuries, we just haven't found a case where when we have tick the boxes if you want, in terms of what was required that that athlete hasn't made a full recovery.
0: Just before we do get into part two with Ender, I just wanna say a big thanks to the third sponsor of the podcast today, which is Fatigue Science. So speaking to a couple of uh, podcast guests over the last couple of months with regards to Fatigue Science, and a service which they provide so it's not something that they uh, massively advertise on the website but what they do or can do is you provide them with your travel schedule um, obviously um, beneficial to those doing regular long-haul flights provide them with your travel schedule and they will calculate how best to adjust your sleep patterns um, in the pre during and uh, post-travel of, uh, of them long-haul flights which can be a real help for those that are that have uh, incredibly quick turnarounds so that little bit of help can uh, can be of, of value. So if you do want to hear about um, Fatigue Science and their Readyband which is uh, obviously the, the sleep tracker which they provide, you can check them out at fatiguescience.com and also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So over to the part two with Ender. Hope you enjoy and I will chat to you soon. So I just want to move on to the kind of second part of what I wanted to discuss with you and that was ACL, another um, another area of interest for you. And I've chatted to a number of kind of re- coaches who kind of specialize in rehabs and the conditioning coaches, um, but it'd be great to get it from, get guest discussion from your point of view and starting off with um, kind of risk screening when it comes to ACL do you just want to talk to us a little bit about your your views and potential um, protocols when it comes to uh, ACL risk screening? Yeah, I think
1: in, in terms of certainly field sport athletes are at, at higher risk, and, and and the biggest risk for rupturing your ACL is participation in, in level one sports. They're sports that involve landing, pivoting, change direction. And um, when you look at the, at the mechanics of ACL injury, whether it's landing or change direction, there's there's You know, a very clear pattern of um, foot in an externally rotated position, landing in an extended knee position, and and a loss of control of the center of mass posteriorly and laterally relative to the stance leg. And that's what drives that uh, large uh, anterior tibial shear through the pull of the quadriceps uh, and then the concurrent uh, medial or valgus stress that leads to the the, the pivoting and and, and, uh, overload acutely of the ACL. Um, So if you're looking to to influence ACL risk, it's really in relation to to how athletes find themselves in those positions. Um, The foot position is driven usually by lateral hip control, uh, how athletes externally rotate their foot when change direction or landing in order to compensate for for poor lateral hip control and strength. Um, Also, when you're decelerating with your foot in an externally rotated position, you're decelerating much more with your quadriceps, which again is going to increase... Uh, and to your knee load and tibial shear and and, and increase the load on the ACL um, and then also then how they control their centre of mass uh, in the sagittal and frontal plane. so again good squatting mechanics translating into good jumping and landing mechanics um, both on double leg and on single leg and that ability to really keep your centre of mass within your base of support at slower speeds and then through into more uh, high speed manoeuvres and then more chaotic manoeuvres that it's it's not that any one variable leads to the rupture of the ACL, it's how these factors combine on one specific occasion um, to lead to that acute overload. And and you know we, we see people every day in the gym and in, in clinic, and you watch them squatting and their knees are banging together or or they're they're buried in anterior tilt or their trunk control is really poor. And you're thinking, how how do they not you know, injure their knee just walking down the stairs. Never mind playing elite sport, but it's 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 factors like that that it's not that any one of these components is really going to uh, lead to ACL injury, but it's how they come and the more than the groin, it's it's the combination of these factors that the more robust we are in each of those, the more room for error we have and the less likely we are to get caught out in that unique episode. There are other factors in relation to collagen type and genetics that are, are are harder to screen for. So if you have someone who has a family history, either, you know, a brother or sister or father who's done ACL, they they may be more predisposed depending on the collagen type. So you may go into a greater depth with those. But certainly trying to identify the main mechanism of injury and change direction and landing and then trying to create more robust execution of those maneuvers are probably the most important factors.
0: Mm-hmm. On the email you sent me previous, you mentioned the dreaded B word that makes me um that makes me slightly nervous, the biomechanics. Yes. And um do you just want to talk to us a little bit about how you use biomechanics in this in the well, we we chatted about the groin. So ACL programs that you that you run down at the sports Surgery Clinic? Yeah,
1: um we use biomechanics as 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 an adjunct to try and uh, improve patient outcomes improve athlete p- outcomes and uh, in return to sport but also make them more robust when they return so they don't have have second injury um either to that knee or to the other knee as well um, Our each of our, our athletes regardless of their uh, sporting level will be reviewed at three months six months and nine months uh, after reconstruction and um, with a goal to i suppose with three main outcomes number one is what are the factors that dictate whether they return to play or not, uh, whether they're able to return with no pain in the knee, and obviously not to have a second injury. And it's not that any one of those are more important than the other. Obviously, everyone has a huge concern around around re-injury, but the re-injury rates, relatively speaking, are, are quite are quite modest. But however, there are a large numbers who, who don't get back to play at the same levels or continue to play with, with, with uh, a degree of pain, symptoms or swelling in the knee. Um, so we have a battery of tests that involves... Uh, strength and power analysis first with isokinetic dynamometry and then uh, jump analysis Um, and then we run through a a number of kinetic and kinematic tests uh, in drop jumps uh, single leg counter movement jumps and double leg counter movement jumps uh, hurdle hops and change direction tests to try and identify uh, variables from our database we would see the surgeons were carrying about a a thousand acl reconstructions per year and so we have data on about uh, five thousand athletes now at this stage um, to try and, and, and be able to stratify those that, that do return, those that return with pain, and those that <clears throat> return for second injury, uh, and to try and create a baseline that if we have uh, one of our surgeons doing, doing a large number of, of ACLs, how is there such, and doing the same procedure over and over, how is there such variety in, in the outcomes afterwards? And a lot of that is because, and certainly what, what the, the clinical question driving my PhD is, is what does a fully rehabilitated ACL look like? And, and despite the huge amount of, of literature and research in relation to surgical technique and outcomes afterwards, th- there's very little to say this is what an athlete should look like when they return to play. And and even more so on top of that, this is what they should look like when they return to play to to different sports. Um, and so the way we try and use biomechanics is to identify the, the kinetic kinematic variables and the strength and power uh, attributes that differentiate those that maybe are on, tar- on target and are progressing as we would expect. Um, I suppose the, the system of three, six, and nine months is at the three-month mark, you're really looking to see you know, have they made considerable progress since, since surgery. You're, you're expecting large deficits, but you want them to be aware of where those deficits are so that they can work and develop upon that in the next block. Um, at the six-month mark, a lot of them are considering return to slightly more robust or, or, or uh, higher-level activity. So are they aware of where the remaining deficits are? Uh, and how to focus and target their progress from there. Uh, and then at the nine-month mark, it really should be the dotting the I's and crossing the T's that have they addressed and, and, and made themselves as robust as possible and have they maintained the attributes that they had at six months. It's incredible how many uh, players, both elite and sub-elite, that, that regress in certain variables uh, and certain attributes between six and nine months, either because they've started to put it, a greater focusing on conditioning or sport specific skill, or they've sort of neglected or forgot the, the strength, power, or control measures that got them in that robust position to be able to go back to those activities. And so it's an opportunity to, to keep on top of them in terms of what, what got them robust and what they need to do and continue to work on going forward. Um, and also then where the, where the performance attributes are in that it's, it's, it's all well and good returning to play with no pain and not re-injuring, but if I don't return to play well uh, or turn to, to performance... Um, that's not, that's not particularly useful either.
0: Mm-hmm. So, are there any commonalities with the athletes that you've worked with between those that do and those that don't fully recover or take significantly longer?
1: Yeah, I, I think um, in terms of, of of the variables that are different, you, you can probably split it into two. Um, number one is uh, in deve- uh, insufficient development of of, of what I would call it extension capacity or, 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 or um, force production in the sagittal plane. Um, very commonly to see ongoing strength deficits at the quadriceps, but also and sometimes an overfocus in the quadriceps with neglect of the calf muscles, musculature, and the hip extensors. Um, and time and again we will see both in strength testing, but also then going further on into our power testing and drop jumps that there are real asymmetries in vertical jump performance in particular in the single leg drop jump, purely because of an insufficient development of strength uh, in the extensors, the calf, quadriceps, and and, and gluteals. Uh, And even within that, um, there there can often be a focus on on compound movements such as single leg squats or double leg back squats or uh, leg press. Um, But if I have uh, deficits in individual muscle groups, let's say as the quadriceps, the other muscle groups within that chain are going to compensate for it. So it, it's very, very common for us to see someone who has a, a symmetrical uh, leg press, let's say I'm going to pick a number, just 100 kilos, but still may have 15 to 20% deficits in their quadriceps strength one side compared to the other. So it's that ability to identify those individual muscle deficits, um, as you will always have after, depending on where the graft is taken from, whether it's a quadricep graft or a hamstring graft, and being able to work not only on the strength through the chain, but also the strength deficits in those individual muscle groups, and then the restoration then back of, of power and plyometric ability uh, in the sagittal plane. And um, the second one then is in relation to deficits in the frontal and transverse plane, in particular in the lateral hip. Um, time and again, we will see that athletes are very strong, you know, nice and powerful, but when you look at their jumping, landing mechanics, uh, and the change direction mechanics they'll still show mark asymmetry and, and vulnerability uh, in knee control and trunk control um, in the frontal plane. So either jumping and landing, that that uh, reduced, uh, or, or sorry, increased knee valgus moment on the operated side. Um, they'll see increased trunk sway on the single-legged test, not only on uh, the frontal plane, as in with the, their trunk leaning more over the stance leg, but also leaning backwards more. Uh, and again, those when we look at the injury mechanism uh, papers, they're the positions that are going to leave you more vulnerable when, when you return to play. So I think definitely that extension capacity, both from strength and then how that's translated through to power and plyometric ability, but also that lateral hip control and, and, and the lateral control, you know, you're going to have a degree of, of atrophy. It's going to take time to build back up that quadricep strength uh, and hamstring strength. So, it it's almost inexcusable that there will be lateral hip issues at that stage because you should have had plenty of time to recover all that capacity long in advance of the quadriceps and, and hamstring muscle groups recovering. So they're the two main areas that certainly seem to consistently have deficits uh, during the review process.
0: Mm-hmm. Superb. So I know you're still at the office, and I don't want to keep you for too long. But just one one last question that I want to ask you um, that I'm trying to crowbar into every podcast moving forward because I think it's uh, I think it's really valuable for people. And that's the most influential book that you've read. Um, I'd be really interested to hear what that was.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question actually. And and we, we we've um, we've moved house recently. I have a slightly longer commute, so my my audio books have gone through the roof this year um i suppose from from a general point of view um there's a book called the 7 habits of highly effective people by a guy called uh stephen covey yeah. and i found that tremendously useful both professionally um interpersonally with with my colleagues and uh, my patients and athletes that I work with and then in general life just just uh, how you interact with people how you, t- you deal with yourself and then how you, you take that in, into your interaction with others so I think generally I would find that, that the most powerful book in terms of sports medicine um, the, the, and, and strength and conditioning there's really a host of excellent texts I suppose Bruckner and Cairns, uh Clinical Sports Medicine is really the go-to uh, for, for anyone involved in, in, in sports medicine it's one of those books um, a bit like the seven habits where, where every time you read it or reread a chapter you, you see bits that you just missed the first time either because you hadn't developed enough experience or you hadn't uh had your mind open enough to to to, to what the, the the authors and the experts were, were telling you so um i think that's one 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 general one sports medicine one uh for the list
0: superb and where where's the best place for people to get hold of your work is research gate the best place
1: yeah, um, okay. all our articles should be on ResearchGate, um, they will be on the uh, Sports Surgery Clinic website and um, they're accessible via my, my Twitter account as well.
0: Perfect, I was gonna, that was one thing I was going to ask, are all the research that is done by your group on the Sports Surgery Clinic website?
1: Yes, they, all the, we're okay. actually we're remodeling the, the website at the minute, so all of the published papers and, and works in progress are, are all up there.
0: Happy days, and you know your Twitter account?
1: End uh, underscore king.
0: Happy days, good work. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for your time, mate. Really appreciate it, and I'll uh, I'll let you get in the car and get get yourself home. You're a gem. Thanks
1: a so million, Rob. It was very enjoyable.
0: Thanks, pal. See you later.
1: Thank you soon.
0: Thanks for tuning in to episode 166 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Ender. So, big thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Bat and Human Track, Force Decks, and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So, got some great guests over the next couple of weeks coming up, including one that I've been stalking for some time um and ironically enough uh, i've spoke to quite a few times since the episodes recording uh, which has been absolutely superb so if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet please press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and every thursday the podcast will automatically get downloaded onto your phone um and you will be able to uh to be listen straight from that so hope you are enjoying the podcast we're at 166 now Incredible that it's actually gone on this long uh, and that people keep listening, but I'm obviously delighted that they do. Um, so, thank you very much again for your support. Um, I, I will speak to you in episode 167.